like I've spent my life pretending you're a great guy and trying to be like you. And the ugly truth has always been... That I'm not that great a guy and you're exactly like me. Am I evil? Worse, you're smart. When you know nothing matters, the universe is yours. And I've never met a universe that was into it. The universe is basically an animal. It grazes on the ordinary. It creates infinite idiots just to eat them. Not unlike your friend Timmy. Tommy. Yeah, it hardly matters now, sweetie. You know, smart people get a chance to climb on top, take reality for a ride, but it'll never stop trying to throw you. And eventually it will. There's no other way off. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. <laughs> no story? No, forget the story. You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? I think we really got something in. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> so we can win to NBC. We tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. <laughs> do shows about nothing mean something? What happens when the structures of our guiding stories collapse? Maybe we end up feeling a bit like the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes who wrote, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Is it best then to stop treating life like an unfolding drama and instead just cope with it being a nihilistic comedy? Maybe this is why we've seen an uptick in nihilistic comedies from the relatively innocent days of Seinfeld to today's cultural zeitgeist like the dark and incredibly obscene meta-nihilism of Rick and Morty. In today's episode, I talk with author and pastor J.R. Forresteros about what to make of shows like Rick and Morty and why as a pastor he's fascinated with the theological and philosophical messages embedded not only in nihilistic comedies like that, but in the revived interest in horror films and even comic book superheroes. JR did his undergrad in religious studies and also has a master's in religious studies, New Testament, and early Christianity from the University of Missouri, Columbia. He writes for the digital magazine Think Christian, an online publication that focuses on the intersection of theology and pop culture. JR and a bunch of other contributors do some great work over there, so check them out. And one final note, you know, just kind of as a parent and pastor here, for those of you that maybe listen with your kids around, I just have to say that today's discussion about shows like Rick and Morty isn't an endorsement of the content in those shows. I hope you've picked up on that in this podcast, that we want to foster nuanced dialogue about things that happen in culture to help us theologically interpret and understand them. But that doesn't mean that for all of you, tuning in and checking out that show is going to be good for you. In fact, if you're expecting it, because I've compared it a little bit here to Seinfeld, that it's along the same lines as Seinfeld. In some ways it is, I suppose, as a as in its nihilistic impulse, but it is incredibly deeply dark and obscene. I am not giving a recommendation of it. I'm also not condemning those of you that watch it either. I think it's a fascinating piece of cultural aesthetic. 
And because of that, I think the ideas are worth our attention. And one final word before we get into today's convo with JR, I'm asking for your help if you're a regular listener to this podcast to help me make a push this summer to hit my first goal on Patreon of 300 patrons. After two years of hosting this program, sharing over 40 hours of collegiate level lectures for free, interviewing dozens of theologians, authors, artists, and scholars from around the country, and gosh, I guess we've had Bruxy Cavion from Canada and Justin Brierley from the UK, so I guess we can say guests from around the world. Well, either way, in order to keep doing that, I'm asking for the support of just 300 of our thousands of listeners be able to pull off weekly ad-free episodes and to be able to give the proper time and attention to the growing number of people from around the country coming to me with questions about their life, theology, and meaning that I want to be able to set aside enough time to be able to help and give counsel to. You can find out more about how to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community supporting on Patreon by checking out the link in the description, the show notes of this podcast. As a special thank you to Patreon supporters, I frequently give away things like Q&A episodes, charts, graphs, and even I've started a new series of articles just launched last week called Get to Know Your Neighbor's Religions, where I'm going through a great book of scholarly articles on each of the world's major religions from scholars within those religious traditions and trying to summarize the key ideas from those religions and then doing a sort of helpful compare and contrast with Christianity, but not in the old school, angry apologetics guy kind of way. So again, you can find out more in the show notes, the description of this podcast. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy my conversation today with J.R. Foresteros. Well, it's so great to be joined by uh, J.R. Foresteros. Uh, you know, this is really weird in one sense, J.R. We're a couple of pastors here, uh, and I have to admit the weirdness of today's discussion because it would seem like taking an entire podcast to discuss a very t- uh, TVMA television show in Rick and Morty doesn't seem like a very pastorly thing to do. So uh, thanks, first of all, for being willing to jump yeah, on and, and do that with me. Hopefully we, uh, we both don't get into a bunch of trouble, but that's all right. What in the world, JR, could possibly draw you into giving your attention to such a dark, nihilistic comedy like this? What have been maybe some of the formative experiences in your life or even in your education that drew you into exploring cultural theology like this? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I think about this all the time. And I think part of it is for whatever reason, when I was growing up, uh, my parents allowed me to consume probably a an, un, an ill-advised amount of horror literature. So, uh, I mean, I th- the one of the first movies I remember watching with my parents was the original Ghostbusters. Mm. And it was, you know, I, I remember uh, at one point in the film, I like hid behind my dad because I was scared, you know, and I was like, pro- I was probably like five or six, uh, maybe even a little younger. And, you know, he's like, what's wrong? What are you doing, buddy? I was like, oh, try to play it off. Like nothing, I'm fine. Like just, you know, stretching or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I read all of the, I, I would save my allowance and go every month to to buy Goosebumps books every time they came out. <laughs> the I had the entire book, collection. Yeah. Those weren't allowed and, in our house. Well, and so what's interesting, so this is it, right? Like my my dad, I think, didn't particularly care. There was actually this old 80s TV show that probably, it must be bad because it's not anywhere. You can't buy it on DVD 
can't get it streaming anywhere. It was called Werewolf. And it only mm-hmm. ran for two seasons. And my dad and I watched that show. It was like our, one of our weekly things. And again, wow. I was like way too young to be watching yeah, yeah. this show, right? So my dad was the one that was like, he was happy to like do watch those things with me and all that kind of stuff. My mom was the one that was always worried that I was a budding serial killer. Um, <laughs> but she had a really good style of parenting, I think that has really shaped me, which was she never just forbade something. She would always inquire. Hmm. You know, so when I bought the Goosebumps books, she would always say like, what, like, what attracts you to these books? Like, why do you, why do you know what day of the month they're, they're, the new one is released? And why do you know, like, that's the day you want to go to the bookstore? Like you, these resonate with you on some deep level. And can you help me understand why? Hmm. And of course, as a fifth grader, I wasn't particularly good at the kind of self-introspection that would like help me walk right, through right, that. Right. But it was that pattern that my mom had of saying, you know, that I don't agree with this. I know that I don't agree with this, but I'm instead of just, you know, playing the mom card, I'm going to try to respect you and engage you when, you know, as a nine-year-old or 10-year-old or 12-year-old, she certainly didn't have to. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, when I when I was when I was getting into Dungeons and Dragons in junior high and high school, she she brought me an article that someone had written that was again, of course, against Dungeons and Dragons because I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. Oh yeah. But the argument in the article was that the reason it wasn't like all of the reasons you would think that uh, like a Christian would be against Dungeons and Dragons. It was literally the argument of the article was that because the goal of Dungeons and Dragons is to level your character up, it promotes a selfish, self-focused worldview. Ah, that's so different. My mom I didn't it. hear that I, I know, growing right? up. I know, it was right? like you're I, you're two steps away from being possessed by demons. Right, the Jack Chick Track stuff, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So my, I remember my mom giving me this article and saying, can you read this and can we talk about it? And I came back to her and I said, because we had family board game nights. Like we would play Monopoly or we would play Mousetrap or go to the head of the class, like all these like classic board games, yeah. right? Sorry. Uh, weekly, like in, uh, one of me or my two siblings would get to choose the board game of the week. So, so I have that framework, right? And I, my mom brings me this article, I read it, and she asked me what I think about it. And I said, well, I don't understand if this is his argument that like competition is bad and trying to be the best is bad. Like, how is that different from sorry, where I'm trying to be the first person to get all of my pieces? And you know, how mm. is this different from where in the world is Carmen San Diego, where I'm trying to win? How is this different from or school where you're trying to get good grades? Right, right. Or, or football. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and to my mom's credit, she said, you know, that's a good point. I think you're right. Good so I had that, I had that kind of that modeling from early on, where even with things where I knew that she was very concerned about the kinds of stuff that I was receiving. And she would always say garbage in garbage out like that kind of like I remember all these things she would say, even still, I had this posture modeled for me of seek to understand, seek to listen, and then critique, right? Just because you just because you understand something doesn't mean you have to agree with it. You know, so there are sometimes still she would say, okay, I hear you, but this is the way it's going to be because I'm your mom. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just even though I grew up in a fair, like I had a youth pastor that showed us, I don't know if you ever saw the Hell's Bells 12 part documentary on how <laughs> rock music is the devil. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I had a youth pastor that showed us that. So, I yeah. mean, I, I was in those circles totally. where this stuff was condemned. Oh, yeah. But my 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 home life, my 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 mom and my dad did not model that for me. I mean, yes. the, the first cassette tapes I ever owned uh, were 
uh, Michael W. Smith's Change Your World. Of course. DC Talk, Free at Last. Oh, yeah. But then then the other two were Beach Boys, Endless Summer, and Neil Diamond, <laughs> Hot August Nights Live, right? So, I mean, there was, and those were all four given to me in the same moment, like when I got my Walkman tape player for That's my birthday right. or whatever. So... I always had the sense that sacred and secular played well together. You know, I didn't understand the cancel culture of 90s evangelicalism with Amy Grant and all that kind of stuff. So um, one, I think I was always kind of attracted to things that were a little bit outside of the norm for the Christian culture that I grew up in. But two, I was given this model of not, uh, not just immediately like slamming the door on those things, but asking, can I understand what this is? And, and that, so that, I mean, as I, as I grew up, as I received a call into ministry, as I went into ministry, um, those were the kinds of conversations I was drawn to. Those are the kinds of people I was drawn to. I mean, and I went to a pretty conservative Southern Baptist undergraduate university and I was in a metal band. So like we didn't play on campus very much. Like we would play, <laughs> we played at the bar right. in yep. town, you yep. know, and we, you know, we didn't cuss, we didn't smoke. We, the the bar loved booking us because bands drink for free and we all drank water, you know? <laughs> so right. we were the only band of the night that didn't have like a $200 bar tab at the end of their show that, that we didn't have to pay. We we had water and maybe Powerade. And uh, so everyone, everyone at the bar and everyone in the venue, they all knew that we were Christians, but we were there and we weren't preaching at them. We were just there yeah, to make right. music, have fun, enjoy the night, make friends with them, but but then be be who we were, right? We were also like very obviously like not wasted, not high, none of that kind of stuff. And and I just saw over and over and over again how when I led with a posture of openness and hospitality, I received openness and hospitality in return. And hmm. some of the best some of the best evangelistic and spiritual conversations I've ever had in my entire life were in those kinds of settings, right? Not in, not in the church, not when I'm preaching from the pulpit or something like that, but in these settings where I was literally in a, in someone else's space, mm. you know? And so I think that just transferred really easily for me into pop culture as I, I just watched things that I enjoyed. I could always ask like, how do I enter into this space, be a good guest, right? Uh, try to listen first before I critique, uh, try to make sure that I understand what I'm critiquing you know, not just get mad because it offends me. Uh, so uh, that's kind of the big picture question, how I, how I got into Rick and Morty. The smaller picture is it's a Dan Harmon show. And I loved Community. It was one of my all-time, all, one of my all-time yeah. favorite TV shows. And I had actually heard about Rick and Morty for ages that it was a Dan Harmon show and all these people that I knew liked it, but I just never watched it. And finally I did. I sat down probably when it was in season three and started watching it. And it took four or five episodes before it really clicked for me. But once mm -hmm. it clicked, man, whew, like I just... I be I became a fan, you know. I, I I tore through what I had and was anxiously awaiting the next seasons and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's a really funny, smart show that makes a lot of good observations about life, you know. And uh, I don't always agree with the show, but I don't have to to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, boy, that's really interesting that you grew up in an environment where, in sort of like the the maybe the the larger culture that you were in southern baptist world you were experiencing really this this probably christ against culture approach and yet in your own house your mom had the wherewithal and the maturity to help you navigate a more nuanced approach that bore such tremendous fruit in your life later in your life to be able to do I know what you're talking about I know those you know I was I was in a band in college too it wasn't a metal band but it was into all the tooth and nail and solid state record stuff you know, what was so cool about being in those scenes was like the people that you'd have conversation with 
like really meaningful conversations about what's true, good, and beautiful, and exchanging ideas. These were people that were never setting foot in my church. Never. Never at all. And so there was this, and not just like, I don't even just look at that as some sort of evangelistic tool, you know, but to really see the missed opportunity that I had that was right in front of me to actually see how Christ was at work. Christ is always at work through culture. There's no uh, uncult, there's no cultureless Christianity, whether it's language itself or the music that's part of the life of the church. You know, I often joke with people, like even in our church, you know, you have this sort of like temp, you know, the traditional versus contemporary divide in music. And the thing I always joke about is like, I mean, if you're pro just traditional music only, you're essentially just saying that God's activity stopped at a certain point in culture and we're just going to freeze frame that forever. And I can't find good reason for it. I also find it interesting that you were like really drawn, really drawn to horror because, well, I personally, I haven't had that feeling for me. It's been more in the, the, the realm of sci-fi and fantasy. But the horror thing never did it for me. But I listened to a lecture from a behavioral scientist recently who was talking about the genre of, of horror. And what he talked about in that, and I never thought about this, and I wonder if this was fascinating to you as well. He talked about one of the things horror does, and especially like, you know, a proper monster film, is it, it blurs the lines between what is imminent and what's transcendent. It, and it makes you open to the possibility that the imminent world right in front of you isn't all that it cracks cracks up to be in a sense you could even think of this wouldn't be a traditional horror film but in a sense like the first matrix movie did that for me it made me just think about perhaps my perceptions of the world aren't the summation of all of reality and so i wonder if that was for you like what what was fascinating to you specifically about horror it took me a long time to get there um to, to figure it out because I just liked it for the longest time. I loved I loved the twist endings of the Goosebump books and how you think everything's okay at the end and then it's not like that that deep sort of unsettling feeling. And maybe honestly, maybe that's because I grew up in such a sheltered, privileged bubble. You know, I I have two great parents. I mean, they divorced when I was in middle school, but but I still had two like very good involved supportive parents. Um, overall, like a very, very privileged uh, upbringing. And so yeah, like if I wanted to be disturbed, I had to go looking outside of outside of my experience, because I did not live the kind of an experience that would be disturbed. Hmm. That's probably part of it. Um, I think where, where horror moved from being a hobby for me, to being a major lens that I used to examine culture was when I read uh, Scott Poole's book, Monsters in America, which came out in 20, 2011. I, don't, I read it a few years after it came out. But, but his argument is, is brilliant. And he, he's not the only person to do this, but it, it's, it's, in, uh, it's in the realm of what sociology calls monster theory. And it draws on like Rene Girard's scapegoating and all yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. But it, but it essentially argues that the things that a culture chooses to demonize or monsterize tell you about the anxieties that the culture has about itself. Whoa. Yeah. So rather, you know, rather than face the ugly parts of our own story, the rather than face the parts of our story that don't fit into our master narrative, we externalize those things. We place them on to a typically onto a marginalized or vulnerable population. And Whoa. then we exorcise them. Yes, that's right. And wow, that, that's brilliant. It, it is. I mean, I'm telling you, like, this just this just completely exploded my brain. And of course, I will say this too, right? Like, as with any genre, right, there are 
terrible, terrible sci-fi movies that don't have any really redeeming qualities. They maybe at best we can say they're fun. And then there's a movie like The Matrix, right? Which which is groundbreaking and honestly just about every way you want to talk about it, including thematically and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, same with horror, right? Yeah, is there schlocky horror that's basically just exploitative and doesn't really have any redeeming value? Yeah, there's like a ton of that. But there's also really smart, sharp horror that helps us, uh, again, interrogate and even diagnose our own culture. And I think, you know, the one of my favorite places to play around with this, other than contemporary, obviously, is in the 60s. Because in the 60s, you had this explosion of what is now considered, you know, classic horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Rosemary's Mm. Baby, Psycho, even at the very early part, Uh, the original Halloween film came out in the 70s, uh, The Exorcist, right? I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. And when you look at what all of those films are saying about uh, what they, well, not what they're saying, because I don't think they're saying it intentionally, what they're revealing about the anxieties of the age, we have a lot, we have a ton to learn from them. And and and, and to me, it's helpful to look back a few years and then be able mm. to look at today, because we're in kind of another horror renaissance, right? I mean, right. Horror fans don't at me. I know horror never went away. I get it. I'm there. I love, but you know, like as far as popular culture is concerned, right? right? right. Like we kind of had the slasher boom of the nineties with like scream and urban legends and all that kind of stuff. But, but nowadays with what they're calling, you know, art house horror, you know, with midsummer and hereditary and uh, Jordan Peele's horror and all that kind of stuff, there's horror all over television all of a sudden again, like it, we really are in like another kind of horror renaissance. And I think it's worthwhile to say like, well, why, like what, what are the anxieties? Obviously we live in an anxious time too right Mm, so like mm -hmm. what anxieties are being manifest what what things are being demonized or monsterized what vulnerable communities are being exploited like you know those those kinds of questions i think are really profitable and and i think horror is one of my favorite lenses to use to look at that because i think it's one that helps us look at it most directly Hmm. well we've talked a lot about uh, on this program about how american culture and I mean, maybe by and large part, Western civilization in general is experiencing a meaning crisis. Maybe it's, maybe it's the moral failures of the church. Maybe it's been our allegiances to political agendas. We, uh, there's so many things we've explored. The hostility to science and the failed culture war that, you know, both you and I have experienced probably in our, in our formative years. And, and maybe, not maybe, but certainly those factors have played a role in people leaving traditional religious structures to pursue DIY spiritualities, to just become a nun, N-O-N-E, right? There's certainly that. But then there's also, along with that, we also probably need to credit the rise of philosophical naturalism, giving way to this deep sense of nihilism. Like, because this structure, this narrative structure, like you're saying, this narrative structure can't support a coherent story uh, that gives life meaning. So I've noticed in my lifetime, and I really want to pick your brain about this, JR, I've noticed in my lifetime this significant increase in nihilistic themes in popular culture. When, when I was a teenager, I, you saw it in, in films like Fight Club, right? Even even Seinfeld. I mean, to me, Seinfeld is one of the original nihilistic comedies. Now, it's not as dark. It is not as meta. It is not as sadistic as like a Rick and Morty or a, a BoJack Horseman. But to me, that was still like... I'm seeing something happening in these 
these cultural stories. Um, have you seen that over the course of your life? What, what would be some examples maybe that come to your mind in, when you think of the, the rise of nihilistic themes and ideas in film and television? You know, uh, so I have to confess, I'm I'm actually one of those that's not a Seinfeld fan. I, mm. I well, this conversation ends right now. I know, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been lovely to thank you for having me on. <laughs> uh, I don't hate Seinfeld, yeah. uh, but I just I can only handle an episode or two at a time, and I, I've never sat down and watched the whole show. You know, so um, so just full transparency, just trying yeah, to put yeah, all yeah. my baggage out there. Um, honestly, the first time I remember uh, encountering nihilism explicitly was in The Big Lebowski. Mm, where, yeah, it's a great example. Uh, you know, where you have the nihilists who are just floating in the pool and insisting they believe in nothing, but that whole film is nihilistic, right? Totally. Like, like the nihilists are allegedly the butt of a joke, except the whole film is about nothing, and it's that nothing has meaning, and every story that they concoct to make sense out of the things that they're finding are are wrong. And I think I think the purest distillation of that in that film is when. Uh, when the dude thinks he's uncovered the secret note and he's like scribbling on the pen pad. And then it turns out just to be a, a crude drawing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's what the whole movie is doing. It's like, you, you think that this is about something, but it's not, it's not about it. It's just a big joke. You know? Uh, of course I didn't understand that as nihilism at the time, but that's the first place I really remember encountering it uh, significantly. Um, I think in a way you could argue that the Matrix sequels are doing that. Certainly the second film sets that up where mm. at the end of the film, Neo meets the architect and the architect's like, yeah, you're a joke, man. Like mm. you're just, you're just the late, like, yeah, this is what happens. You're just part of the whole system. Like your whole, your whole thing is plotted, like planned for, like you're, you're a, you're a glitch that we built in on purpose. Right. And, I remember and, that having such a, an effect on me. And now that you put words to it, now I, I can see it because in the first film, there were all these messianic themes surrounding Neo granted in further reflection, probably more Gnostic Christianity than necessarily but still, Orthodox, but still there were these, there's messianic themes and you had this sense of hope that this character was now going to redeem all of humanity in the follow-up movies right and then he gets to be meet the architect and like you're saying the architect's like yeah you're just part of the deal right like everything else and i i you even just saying that now helps give voice to the disappointment i think i felt in the theater in that moment of going oh really so yeah, the and matrix I think another one that was you know <laughs> the, the follow-up uh, the the sequel two and three man i didn't even think about that well, and and I think I think the third film tries to do something different, right? Because uh, I think you could argue largely, like the the first two films are about who's going to live, the humans or the or the machines, right? And it's one one can only thrive at the expense of the other, um, and that because that's the way the world has been built. And I think when you look at what's happening with the modern Western world, that's what's happening here, right? Is it like, mm -hmm. is, it, is, it, is it the culture of the West that largely was built on exploitation and oppression and co colonialism? Or is it going to be all of these exploited, oppressed, and colonized people? And there's this kind of, I mean, I think one of the one of the reasons that modernity is breaking down, and one of the reasons that we of the West feel such a lack of meaning is because the story that we shaped our whole world by, we're we're seeing what what poison roots it has. And now we're starting to hear all of these other perspectives and voices that have been there the whole time. We just couldn't hear them because of the way everything was built. And now we are we I, I keep saying we because we're both, you know, white Anglo-Saxon 
men, you know, we're kind of at the top of the top of the pyramid, so to speak. But we're wondering, like, can a world even exist if our story is not the story, you know? Mm. And I think the third Matrix film is it tries to get to that place where we can, yeah, the old thing has to be destroyed, but we're trying to build something new in its place. You know, uh, honestly, I think, I think one of the shows that's the most insightful about this to a point is the good place, you know, very recently hmm. where it takes, it takes this whole constructed afterlife and reveals by the spoilers for the last season of the good place that the whole system is broken. Hmm. Right. And it's, it's not broken. This one's interesting because it's not broken because it was built broken. It's broken because it's, it's, it's uh, antiquated, right? The system worked for a simpler world, but because the world has continued to grow and to evolve, the points system that the good place worked by is, is no longer uh, workable. And so they, they literally have to tear the whole thing down and start from scratch and rebuild. And, and then even still, uh, the good place ends with ambiguity, right? When they, when they walk through the door at the end of the show, you still don't know what happens. So there's still this, there's still this sort of uh, uh, existential nihilism at the heart of the show, yeah, which is yeah. we, we don't know what happens after we die. So maybe the best we can do is be the best we can to each other. Yeah, you yeah, know? it's it's the myth of Sisyphus, right? Yeah, we might not be able to control the fate that we have, but we can control our inner subjective world. Right. And it's interesting because right. as, even as you talk about this, I see these other themes that uh, are also running parallel with that nihilistic impulse. I mean, you certainly see like the the the, the deconstruction mode of the postmodern narrative too, which is I, I'm not attempting to make a straw man out of it or demonize it, but one of its primary functions is to act as the sort of wrecking crew to meta narratives. And so when you have that happening already, which is like, hey, we're going to deconstruct this meta narrative, and you already are doing that within a largely growing secularized culture, which doesn't have the support system, it's maybe, you know, I think I've heard some people say it's still sort of living out of the carcass of the death of God. Um, it makes for a really really dark recipe. I mean, I've even seen this a lot and there's been some backlash. You know, I'm, I'm a big comic book fan, right? And there's been a lot of backlash in particular about DC comics and, and DC films about the darkness um, there and uh, an attempt to maybe return, re reboot that universe and to rebuild these characters in more sort of the silver age of comics with hope and positivity. And I don't, I don't know how successful those attempts will be because those Silver Age heroes operated largely within a narrative structure that provided uh, people with a shared sense of meaning and purpose. And as you said, a lot of that shared sense of meaning and purpose has had some fundamental flaws to it too, right? These, these flaws in it, these blind spots or just dark, malevolent things about uh, using this meta narrative in a sort of like manifest destiny way to control, to consume, to subjugate people. It's, man, it's, a, it's an interesting cultural time to explore these ideas. Well, and think about the one big screen superhero who is completely, unambiguously, morally good and praiseworthy. It's Captain, Captain America. America. That's right. And he's frozen yeah. from a previous... I mean, the last time America was unequivocally the good guys was when we beat the Nazis. Mm -hmm. I, if you can remember a time when Nazis were bad guys, right? <laughs> like, um, And 
And so we literally had to freeze him in ice and then bring him into the present and thaw him out. Like, yeah, there's there right now, we cannot imagine a hero, a person who is a product of our time and place, who mm. is like unambiguously good, always does the right thing, you know, all that kind of stuff, which, which I think, you know, if you go back and read Snyder's take on Superman, all the way back into the Man of Steel, like he specifically says, like the idea of Superman being this like, unequivocal moral good guy is just completely yeah it just doesn't even it's impossible i think right yeah Yeah. so i think it's i would argue actually that that's why we need the blue boy scout more than ever (laughs) like we you know if 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 one of the functions okay so i like to talk about superheroes as our modern myths and if one of the functions of myth is to help us see who we could be i think we need to have bigger imaginations if someone says it's just not possible that that could work then we need someone who can imagine that it could work to come along and tell that story you know i would actually love to see a superman that we almost sort of kind of got at the end of justice league right who just is a good dude who knows how to smile and does the right thing because it's the right thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and his yes, mustache hasn't been CGI'd out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for the Snyder cut. We'll just put it, we'll just put it like that. Well, kind of sticking, <laughs> sticking in the, the arena of cultural exploration through the lens of superheroes. Um, I think for me, one of the things I would point to as a sort of cultural zeitgeist moment in our cultural imagination, which, which, got people it begged the question in people's minds is life just a meaningless joke was heath ledger's portrayal of the joker in the dark knight which you know as a batman guy is very you know that portrayal wasn't really true to you know the the comics per se he was definitely i see what nolan's intentions were we did a video about it maybe a couple of years ago on the on the on my youtube channel exploring how the Joker is bringing these critiques, these sort of uh, Nietzschean critiques of morality and morality be based on power. And I really think that begged the question, is life just a meaningless joke? Is it just a joke? And I think I've, I would say since that time, and there were certainly incidences of this before that time, to me, it seems like there has been an increase in nihilistic comedies, or at least in their popularity. Nihilistic comedies like Rick and Morty, you know, BoJack Horseman, you know, I, there's probably more on that list, but those are the two that stand out to me the most right now off the top of my head. For those unfamiliar with the show, unfamiliar with Rick and Morty in particular, could you, and I should say this, you know, my, uh, like my pastor warning on the show is, you know, if you hear us mentioning this in the same breath as Seinfeld or as a Matrix movie, <laughs> it's not. It's not. It is. Um, R- I'm R- not. R- yes, I am not <laughs> recommending it. Like for me, I don't really enjoy it, and I this wouldn't be like a. I wouldn't argue with you about this, Jr. This is this, people have different places where they can a threshold by which they can take that stuff, even as they're mining for what's true, good, and beautiful. For me, it's like, boy, it's hard hard work mining and <laughs> mining in these caves um, with Rick and Morty. So my like disclaimer about that. So those that haven't seen it and maybe like go, I don't know if I'm going to, but maybe you're just interested on in its cultural importance. Could you maybe give a little bit of a synopsis or a basic story? Tell us a little about the characters, some of the common themes that you find in this program. 
Yeah, so it often gets compared to like an R-rated Back to the Future, which is the uh like the most basic sense, right? Yeah. Like Rick is a a grandpa and Morty is his grandson. Uh the other the other three main characters are Morty's family. So it's it's Rick's daughter and her husband and then Morty's sister, right? So it's the it's the five of them that are kind of the main cast of the show. And at, at this point, it's four seasons and it's got a sprawling um, support cast because essentially the show will take 15 science fiction concepts, shake them up in a jar and throw them all into one episode lightning fast. It's genius. Uh, yeah, it's, it it's really... Like it's, I like it's. There's a level of intelligence necessary to stay in contact with what all right, is going on i have to admit it's, that it's dense it makes the episodes highly rewatchable because there's always stuff that you didn't pick up on or nuances or tie-ins callbacks to previous episodes all that kind of stuff but the 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 core the core conceit of the show is that rick the the doc brown character the scientist is the smartest person who's ever lived who's a he can literally invent anything he wants and uh, he's also essentially a sociopath. <laughs> like, yes. yeah, right. um, he, he, and this, to your point, it's nihilistic, right? He doesn't believe there's any kind of higher power. He doesn't believe, he's, he's so smart that he doesn't see the point in caring about anyone. If anyone's a Watchmen fan, he's like Dr. Manhattan by the That's end of the That's a great, book, yeah. Right? Great like he's like, he's like nothing. And there's, there's literally an arc in Rick and Morty where he and Morty accidentally turned the entire earth into, they call it Cronenberg monsters. If you're a David Cronenberg fan, he did like the thing and some of those other classic body horror films. Uh, the whole earth ends up mutated into these horrible, disgusting monsters. And you're like, Oh, well they're going to fix it at the end of the episode, obviously. And they don't instead, they actually abandon that earth and just go to live on a parallel earth where they're, everything is exactly the same, except they didn't turn everyone into Cronenberg monsters. Cause you know, there's a multiverse and all that. So like that's the level of dark that it can descend to, right? Where, where um, all at the end of the day, all Rick cares about is Rick. And one of the interesting conceits of the show is how Rick's conception of Rick is stretching to include his daughter and his grandkids and maybe even his son-in-law. <laughs> like, <you> know, like, <laughs> that's up for debate. <laughs> yeah, it kind of depends on the episode, you know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he, he will often invent miracles of science literally just to get his grandkids to quit annoying him. Uh, the, the, one of the famous episodes is called Pickle Rick, and he transforms himself into a pickle and then has a whole adventure because for reasons that are in the episode, he loses the antidote. And uh, he ends up transforming himself uh, into a, like a pickle living in a machine that he can operate and all this kind of stuff. And, and all of it is done to not have to go to family therapy. <laughs> with his family like that's right. the whole you know which is a side so, note if if i can just say real quick jr one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you about this is because though like that's a cultural icon pickle rick is and a lot of people don't know what it is like my son on his the background on his school computer who and he is 11 he's never seen the show whatsoever and one day i'm looking at his computer and his background is pickle rick pickle rick <laughs> And I'm like, Justice, what what is on your background here? And he's like, Oh, it's Pickle Rick. I was like, Do you know what that's from? No. He's like, Everyone just says just it's funny, funny though. Yeah. I'm like, Let's get a different background. You're 11. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, I just had to share that story. 
It's uh, it is there the whole the whole thing with uh, Szechuan Szechuan sauce at McDonald's like that's the whole thing and like <laughs> right. people have started trolling McDonald's and it's it's real it's real weird. The the I think the the tension at the heart of the show is and I, I'll I'll take a side on this right. I believe that the show ultimately critiques Rick's misogyny and misanthropy and nihilism. Right. I think it ultimately exposes him as a fraud. Yeah, I agree. Uh, however, that's pretty subtle, and it requires, like, it requires, I think, actually willing to engage the show. If you're the kind of person that just wants to turn something on and laugh at it, I think it's actually really easy to think that Rick's the hero of the show. Yeah. Because yeah. he so often does things that end up being technically heroic. Well, in a lesser extent, that was the same issue with Seinfeld. None of these characters yes. in Seinfeld were intended to be people you look at and go, man, that's... Boy, I, I want to be like be George friend. Costanzo yeah, yeah. when I grow up. It was it's they're yeah. always like cautionary tales. I see that too, but I you know, that is one of my my concerns for people that consume it without that level of critique is they go, Hey man, this guy's funny and he's presented uh, as sort of on top of the hierarchy of characters here. Maybe I should model this deep cynicism. It's and cool to be like care. Rick, right? It's yeah. cool to be like Rick, yeah. So what would you say are some of the common themes thematic thematically that you would see see throughout the show? That's that's interesting. I mean, one I think one one thing that you should expect if you watch Rick and Morty is to to for the for the the show to play with the concept of narrative. And even the the episode that I wrote about uh um really does that if you if you're not a dan Harmon fan uh you absolutely ought to go look up articles that talk about dan Harmon's story circle uh he started using it on community and he uses it in rick and morty it's how he outlines everything he does it's based on the hero's journey from joseph campbell from the mm -hmm. monomyth uh, and it's a really innovative clever way of mapping out stories and i think one of the things it does is that underlying structure allows Harmon to create these well Harmon and his whole writing team right because it's not just him but it allows them to create these incredibly dense episodes that even though 500 things are happening a mile a second uh it's still coherent and at the end of the day even though by the time an episode's finished you're kind of exhausted and your brain needs a break from like watching so many things happen you understand what what happened in the show right so there's this there's this really interesting uh there's this really interesting insistence that because the show follows the structure of the motto myth the characters grow but the characters also actively actively resist their own growth particularly Rick and Morty right. um so you actually have them talking about how they finished all of the growth stuff now they can get back to having fun so like the show gets really meta with itself and then again i think that's where the tension comes in right um the show doesn't work if it doesn't follow Harmon's circle telling, but in order to in order to tell a hero's journey story, there has to be growth and transformation. So at the and end of the day, to it right, what, right, what are you growing it, right? towards? Right, and uh, and so I think again, it just it, it's such a unique show in that you have this main character who's so smart, he's aware that he's in a story. Right. Like he's like that, like he's like transcended the and gets meta all the time. Yeah. And yet he's actively resisting growing. And I think one of the things the show has been doing, particularly in the last couple of seasons, particularly in this most recent season that just finished, is it's illustrating the cost of refusing to grow. Mm. Um, which again, as a pastor, I am 
particularly struck by because um, in, in my experience, people nearly never change until they have to. Hmm. And I can, we can yeah. get up there and preach the most eloquent sermons or lead the best Bible studies or, you know, it's, it's the whole, you can lead a horse to water thing, right? We, we can, we can put all of the tools we want in front of people in the most clever and interesting and fun ways. And yet people as a whole don't avail themselves of the tools of spiritual growth and personal transformation, usually until we hit some kind of a crisis. And you even see that in Rick and Morty, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. instances, I want Absolutely. to talk about this episode you wrote about, but I do remember another episode where, uh, if I remember the details, at least somewhat vaguely, Rick is flying through space. I don't know if he's headed towards a black hole or to the, you know, an abyss towards nothing. And uh, in in a moment, he calls out to, to God, save me, <laughs> you know, just save me from this. Right. And, and like you see in those moments where he thinks, obviously, he, there, he's very, very anti-theism, right? In, much, in many ways, he's kind of like the caricature of what you might bump into as like an online new atheist blogger. You know, there are all these just horrible, horrible um, dispositions towards anything related to traditional religion in any way, shape, or form. But in that moment, he calls out to God— and whether he's saved by God or not in that moment is left up to in interpretation. But you see that. You see it in the episode. I want to unpack a little bit here with you. Uh, it's in the most recent season, right? Never Rick, Never Ricking Morty is the name of the episode. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happens in that story? Because I found it really fascinating, especially as a, a, a show that's in a sense, it's a show about nothing. And, and in some ways, to me, it seems like evangelistic in a sense. It's an evangelistic story or an evangelistic program, evangelistic narrative about how all of your meta narratives are failing, <laughs> you know, uh, your attempts for meaning, purpose, and significance, everything you've pursued in your life that's part of our normal cultural uh, telos, those are all worthless. Let's show you how it's worthless. And maybe in some sense, if it tries to point to anything, it's like, well, I think as Rick told his uh, granddaughter once, like, you know, just accept that the universe is going to chew you up and spit you out and then just decide to live your life, which is, again, getting into the the existentialist philosophy of guys like Camus and Sartre. So what happens in this particular uh, episode, which has to deal a lot with the way we experience as storied creatures reality. Yeah, this is, I think this is easily one of the most overtly meta episodes to the point that, again, several characters in the episode call it out as meta right. and are told not to think about it. <laughs> but uh, it, it, the whole thing is on a train, which we learn is a literal story device. And so everyone on the train has a story about Rick and and so Rick and Morty are on the train trying to investigate this thing, and they keep actively rejecting the anthologizing of the story. They, and every time someone tries to to weave them into a flashback about Rick, they you know they refuse it. And because they refuse to live in the story, the the um, 
authority figures of the of the story of the train start to try to corral them and then they literally if you're paying attention in the episode you can see it at, at one point they decide they're going to hack the story using Harmon's circle like they actually pull out the the circle map of Harmon's uh, story circles and figure out okay if we're going to go here we got to do this and it's what we need <laughs> which yeah. your, your brain's hurting laugh, at that point have, that's right. That's right. That's right. They have to, I mean, again, to, to illustrate how self-aware the show is about Rick, Rick's level of misogyny, he tells Morty that he has to, he has to uh, pass the Bechdel test in order because this is something the show would never do. And so Morty has to tell a story where two women have a conversation, two women who both have names have a conversation about something other than a man. And of course, the story itself is still incredibly misogynistic, but it functions to, you know, do what they need to do in the moment and, and move them on where it ends up is with uh a person named the story lord who captures them both and puts them into a machine that is basically going to suck all of the stories out of them so that they can tell rick and morty stories forever and you see that the three uh the it's it's profitability marketability and relatability i think are the three the gauges on the story yeah yeah it's the things that the story runs on and uh, Rick realizes the only way for them to get out of this is to break the story. <laughs> and so that's when he actually drops to his knees with Morty and leads his nephew in a prayer of salvation for the ages. I mean, it, it, it ticks every box that you would want a prayer of salvation to tick. This would be usable within like in, a typical evangelical structure. That's what I'm saying. Right? Yeah. It would, it would be usable at any evangelical children's church, like anywhere, right? Like it's, it's well, not even children's church, any altar call, anything you yeah. want. It's um, yeah. Like if you, then, if you took that script and you just handed it to somebody at the end of a Billy Graham style crusade, and they said that thing verbatim without any sense of irony or, or Rick's, um, you know, somewhat grinding voice, um, <laughs> you know, it, it would work. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so because he prayed that prayer, Jesus Christ himself descends from the clouds and salty and the veggie tales and a few other <laughs> Christian cartoon characters meet with Jesus. And then that breaks the story. <laughs> and so they, they get out, they get out of the story train. And I mean, the, the, the episode goes on from there, but it's what, what captivated me about that moment was this idea, I mean, it, the, the term deus ex machina comes from, you know, Greek drama, where literally at certain point, certain key plot moments, they would lower a person playing one of the gods onto the platform. And then that person would, you know, give a key piece of knowledge or juice, you know, so the god, god in the machine is the deus yes. ex machina. And, and in this case, in the Rick and Morty, it, it's, it's typically considered bad storytelling today, right? Because it's, it's, it's relying on something exterior to the narrative to break in and fix, fix all the problems with magic. Um, and so I love that, again, how do you break the story? Well, with a literal deus ex machina, you literally have Jesus break into the story and you have, you know, when Morty questions whether they've crossed the line and this is offensive, Rick says, I mean, how can it be offensive? We were literally saved by Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> who's going to get mad about that? Um, but, but what captivated me about all of that is that it had this sense that um, when we focus when we focus the gospel entirely on the narrative of personal salvation, it is actually sort of a bad story. And I think you see that in the conversations going on right now about race in our culture. You hear, I hear a lot of Christians who say, you know, it's a, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue saying like, Oh, if, if we could just get everyone to ask Jesus into their hearts, then there would be no more racism. If they just follow the formula. 
Right. And I think I think one of the big problems with that is you have to say that like literally every person who lived every white person who lived in the 1800s was not a Christian because, you know, we own slaves, went to war over it, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think I think we have to recognize that um part of the gospel is certainly our individual salvation and transformation. But if that's the if that's all we talk about, it's actually a pretty bad story, you know, because mm. it leaves it leaves the evils of the world, it leaves the injustices of the world unaddressed, and a story where I get rescued but everything else goes to hell is a pretty for me it's a pretty bad story, you know. Yeah. Um, and again, I think for someone like me who was raised in relative privilege and comfort, it's easy for me to believe that story, but when I when I do the best I can to stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters around the world who are oppressed, I think it's easier for me to see that when I just, I mean, for instance, gosh, again, growing up in my little Christian bubble, we would have like honest spirited debates about whether missionaries who go to impoverished parts of the global South should waste their time feeding and getting clean mm-hmm. water and stuff like that. Shouldn't they just be preaching the gospel? Cause after all, as long as they ask Jesus into their heart, who cares if they die, they go to heaven. Yeah. And I hear myself say that now. And I'm like, that is mo- like monstrous. That's monstrous that we could care so little for the physical welfare of people and then and then in the same breath claim that we're doing something that that is loving yeah it's the reduction it's the reduction of even the very person of jesus christ to be a propositional statement that we give cognitive assent to and that's the thing which to your point earlier is gnosticism right (laughs) right it is if i give cognitive assent to the secret knowledge and that's you know it it was in many ways like the, the episode is horribly offensive on some level Right. And then on another level, the thing that it reveals, especially as it's paired, I, if I remember correctly, the very next um, sort of way they because they actually are still end up they're still on the story train after that they go to try to stop it and something breaks and then they find out. The very next thing is that the story train is something that um, Morty needs to buy. Right. Yeah, it's buy. a toy. It's, it's a, a toy. toy. It's yeah. a toy they need to buy. And Rick's advice to him is, well, just buy it. Just buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. Everything. Be a good consumer. Be a good consumer, (laughs) right? And this is paired right together. And it's a really interesting, like, to me, I'd say even prophetic insight that we think these things are going to save us. And it's not that Christ doesn't save. It's that what we actually think saves us is the propositional knowledge about certain ideas about Christ instead of the very person of Christ, who is Lord, that we follow in participation with him, in participation with the life of the Spirit, in the life of the Spirit as it works in the world, which is very, very different than a simple prayer, right? And, and, and this isn't to minimize the, the fact that many people, if not most people's journey with Christ begins with some sort of prayer of genuine repentance and saying, I want to follow. So I don't want to minimize that, but I do think it was interesting that it highlighted, to me at least in the way I interpreted, a reduction of who Christ is to a formulaic prayer that's on par with us thinking, well, we can save our culture just by buying more stuff. And those two together, I was like, golly, I hate this, but it's probably true. It it hurts, yeah. Like it's, and and yeah, for me, I think, 
you know, uh, again, when they're joking about, is this offensive? We were literally saved by Jesus. Ha ha. You know, I was laughing at that, but I was also like, you know, I'm, I'm being offended on the right level by this, right? It's to your point, it's prophetic. It's revealing a painful truth about the way we too often talk about who Jesus is and his work. And, you know, there's a big, there's a big uh, debate going on in evangelicalism right now about what the heart of the gospel is. And there's, there's one camp that says it's personal salvation, personal justification. Uh, and then the, the other camp says, no, the heart, the heart of the gospel, like what the Bible story is about is about how Jesus becomes king. And, and, and he's the kind of king who becomes king, not by conquering, but by dying, right? And then by being raised from the dead. Mm. And part and parcel of that journey is that he purchased adoption for all of humanity. Right. But that's, a, that's an effect of Jesus's life. It's not, it's not the, uh, if there was only, if, if you were the only person who would ever sin, Jesus would die for you. It's not that like hyper individualistic, like self-focused. Yeah. Or even, even to the point where you think the entire scope of salvation is just about what happens to human beings, as opposed to this cosmic renewal story that we see in the biblical narrative. That's not just about people from every tribe and tongue, but it's about the setting right of everything in creation, right? right? The That's shalom right. of God happening here on earth as it is in as it is in heaven. And so, you know, as much as some of those critiques hurt, like there's been there's been movies and things in pop culture that have really been on an initial like read or watch through has really offended me. Boy, there was a movie I remember seeing when I was in college and I didn't get it and I know it, this isn't to say like I don't think Dan Harmon's intention is to go, boy, I want to speak this prophetic truth so that people can see it. You know, I don't think the the intention is somewhat separate from whether or not there is some truth being revealed. And I remember, I think the movie was called Saved. Was there with with Mandy Moore? Is that right? I love that movie. (laughs) You know, and, you know, there was a a a, story about that when you're done. (laughs) There was a lot of agendas in that movie too, right? Like the, the storytellers have their own story to tell. And so there's, it's like, again, we, we do nuanced sifting through of these things, but I remember just being like, so frustrated at first viewing and then stepping back and going, man, like, first of all, is this perception a perception that many people have about what it looks like to be in Christian community? And even if on that level, even if it's just a perception, what is actually feeding that perception? And and should I be concerned with this perception? And it's not like all of a sudden, if, if you know, if people just started following the way of, of Jesus, and, you know, made Jesus truly king and Lord of their life, that everyone's going to love them. That's certainly not the case. You're going to bump into principalities and powers and all sorts of resistance. But I also think there's a lot of ways we think that we're bumping into, you know, the persecution for the gospel's sake. And it's like, no, no, I think... You're just a jerk. You're just... And sometimes I see stuff like this and I go, oh, it makes me so, so mad that you would just make Jesus a character in a cartoon with abs that are used, they use some really, really un, uh, totally like, I don't know what the word is for it to describe that level of <laughs> filth. <laughs> 
and it makes me really mad. And it's simultaneously, I'm also going, okay, why is it that people feel this way? Yeah. Um, so, so a couple things. One, uh, the guy who wrote this particular episode is named Justin Roiland, and he's actually a former evangelical. Well, no shot. So, yeah, yeah. I, right. Yeah. Earlier, I think in the pre-show, we were talking about how obvious it is that someone had done their homework. Well, yeah, he's he came by it honestly, and so I, yeah, I think that's part part of his critique. In there is is hard one from his own ex- experience. Um, but yeah, when you're talking about saved, so I went when I went to grad school. Instead of going to seminary, uh, I went to a state university, University of Missouri Columbia, and did a religious studies degree there. So I went from being like one of the most liberal guys at my conservative Christian school, liberal because I would ask questions, right? That was what made me, that was what tarred me as a liberal was I didn't just like, you know, shrug my shoulders and say, okay, when the professor said something, um, to being one of the most conservative people in my program. Cause like I had these, I believe these crazy things like Jesus actually was raised from the dead. You wild man. Like like you believe like what? Like you're, I didn't know people were real like that. Yeah. So (laughs) So our religious studies club had a movie party one night and we watched Saved. And when it was over, actually one of the people who liked it the least was a guy in the group who's an atheist. Mm. And he said, it makes me so mad when people take religious communities like this and and make them such outrageously caricatured depictions. And me and several other people in the room had to be like, actually, I could introduce you to literally like 10 different people that are very much like very real versions of that. Like there was very little caricaturing going on for most of those, you know, the, the friends who kidnapped the girl and put her in the van and tried to do an exorcism on her. Like I know people that like mm-hmm. have been exorcised just because they dyed their mm-hmm. hair black or got a tattoo or were gay or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, uh, I wish, I wish they were stereotypes. I wish they were caricatures. I wish that they were outlandish, but to your point, right? Like it actually hits a lot closer to home than I wish it did. Yeah, it certainly um, does. Yeah. And I, I think there's the value even for us, not getting back to maybe the beginning of our conversation today, JR, you know, the, the point of being theologians of culture isn't just for evangelical purposes to be able to have conversations with people who need a new guiding story, their story trains heading in the wrong direction. It's not just for that, but it's also so that we could see Christ's work in culture, which is attempting to potentially speak something into the culture of the the people of God, right? And with some sort of prophetic voice and say, hey, you know, you know, you you might not you might not be bearing witness to Christ in the way that you're living in the world, and so for us to be able to see that stuff in culture isn't just about we need to save, which is kind of like the point of the movie Saved. It's not even just so much we need to save you as us looking at what God is doing in you know Kevin Van Hooser I think calls it the latent church. You know, it's that it's there is this presence and this the activity of the Spirit outside of the walls of Christian community, and for us to be able to even step into that helps us see things that the Spirit might actually be trying to reveal to us if we have the humility to see it. And I I think that's a big reversal for evangelicalism, because our mission strategy for so long has been uh, God's not there, and we're going to take God where God is not. And what you've just said is we're going to identify yes. where God is 
and we're going to go join in what God is doing, which, which yes. requires a different posture, right? I have to come in as a student. I have to listen. I have to be humble. I have to be listening, not only for where the spirit is working, but to the people that I'm among, because I'm not assuming that they're working from a position of ignorance. I'm, I'm assuming the spirit is already present and working among them. And, and I'm trying to join the conversation, not lead the conversation. Hmm. And that's hard for us. I mean, we're not used to that. No, we're not. Well, Jay, I'm super thankful that we got to have this conversation together today. And I hope that many people listening today will um, will be able to actually follow up and maybe check out some of the work that you're doing. Uh, I know you've got podcasts, you write for Think Christian, for um, several other places. I know you're a pastor as well. Your sermons are online. What are some ways people can get connected with you? And I'll make sure I include links in the the, the show notes. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast. I, I love getting to talk about this stuff, uh, especially with the other, other pastors who are doing the same work, right? Because it's uh, I, it, so often I think we're antagonistic instead of engaging. Um, so my website is jrforesteros.com. Everything I do is there. Uh, my main podcast is called The Fascinating Podcast, which I do with uh, three other authors. And so we just, we're actually about to wrap up our, our latest season. But this whole season, we've been talking about reconstructing faith. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of yeah. prominent Christians have been walking away from the faith or deconstructing, yeah. or, and that's been a, a thing. And so we talked about that a lot. And we said, you know what, but that's fine. Like, we've all been there. We've all like been through that process of making our faith our own. But like, let's talk about what what happens after deconstruction, right? What happens right. when you, you really begin to like build something new. So we've been doing a lot of that. Um, I do have a book, it's called Empathy for the Devil, where I look at what we can learn from the villains of scripture. Mm. So I give them, it's not, it's not exactly the wicked treatment, but I, I do try to, I, I ask what happens when we tell the story of Delilah from her perspective, right? What happens when we tell the story of Jezebel or Judas, and yes, even the devil, right? And, and can I learn from having some empathy with them, right? What, can I learn what, what sin might be in my own life that is unrevealed. So again, tr trying to kind of hang out on that, that topic of like, can I, can I learn to do the work, you know, without a catastrophe? Right? So, without, instead of without... like, so instead of seeing like the, the story of David or Samson, you put yourself in the protagonist role all the time and identify with that to be able to see how, wait, hang on, there might be some stuff here that I need to identify with these villains and, and to see that yeah, in my and... own heart. And I think it's important, uh, again, I'm not giving them the wicked treatment where it's like, oh, she was actually the good witch all oh, along. Like, gosh, I'm not doing yeah, that, right? Yeah. I'm just saying, Thank you. I'm, 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 <laughs> I know, I'm starting from the assumption that everyone is the hero of their own story, right? And so when Herod orders the, the deaths of the infants in Bethlehem, in his mind, he's not doing that because he's a genocidal monster. That's right. Right? In his mind, this is the best option he has at the time. It may not even be what he wants to do. It's just the best option he has. Now, I don't have to, again, going back to what my mom taught me, right? I don't have to agree with Herod to put myself in his shoes and try to understand why did he think that way, right? Um, and then once I've done the hard work of trying to understand him, is it possible that I might see some of the same tendencies or decisions on a smaller scale that I'm making mm -hmm. in my own life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because um, if it's if it was wrong for Herod, then that means it's wrong for me, mm. right? Wow. Um, so that's that's kind of the idea with the book. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. It's been out. It's, it's from InterVarsity Press. So yeah, it's you can get it pretty. I think most places still have it. Um, 
yeah, so that's it. Podcast website, uh, book. I think those are those are all the play. And then yeah, you mentioned I think Christian. I love getting to write for them and be on their podcast when they have me. So oh, that's awesome. I've, I I do enjoy the work. I I frequently go over there and just check out some of that stuff. And this is it does seem to be a bit of a, a niche field in theology, cultural theology. So for those of you that are interested, and when we cover that sort of stuff in this program, I I would recommend you check out. JR stuff. I, I, from what I've seen, it's all just like what we've had in demonstrating this conversation today, which I've I've found really enriching. And I hope we get to do it again sometime, JR. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back on. Thank you, Paul, so much. Well, I'm thankful again to have had JR Forsteros on the program today. Make sure you check out his website. I provide a link in the description so you can get connected with all the different things JR is doing. You can find his book. Uh, you can check out his podcast. JR is doing a bunch of stuff, especially in this world of cultural theology. So take a look at that again. You can find a link to JR's website in the description or show notes of this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Deep Talks Patreon community. And this month, we've had a bunch of new people that have responded to the drive for 300 and a bunch of people that have jumped in at uh, the Theology 201 tier. So I want to give a special shout out and thanks to people like BJ, Eli, Josie, Luke, Paul R., Sarah R., Sean C., Stephen M., thank you guys, Tim K., thank you for your support. Uh, I just can't do this without you guys, really. I, I just I just can't. I can't set aside the time, can't pay the podcast hosting fees, uh, I, buying the books and articles that I, I do for research on this stuff. I just I can't do without you, so thank you so much. Again, if you want to get involved, especially this summer, I'm really trying to make a push so that we can take this podcast to the next level to, to get to a point where I'm doing consistently, where I can get to weekly episodes ad free and man there's just so many new people that i'm meeting around the country who are listening in reaching out with questions with real serious concerns and questions that they don't feel like they necessarily have other people to talk to or help them unpack and i love helping people unpack those things i love in a sense being a pastor even beyond the walls of my church to help people go through this stuff but man, I just can't do that without your support to be able to set aside the time to do that, to give that sort of attention to people. And um, I, I'm just so thankful for those of you that are supporting. If you can't do that, you know, another way you can support this podcast is by just leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing there, subscribing wherever you listen. So thanks to those of you that have taken the time to do that as well. As always, I love hearing from you. Uh, reach out to me, those of you that are on the Deep Talks Patreon community. Uh, if you haven't, maybe signing up there is a great way to connect with me and respond to all the messages I receive there. But you can also reach out to me on Twitter. I leave a uh, link to my Twitter handle in the description as well. Love having conversations with people there. You can also follow me on Instagram, but probably Twitter is the number one place I'm most active. So if you're on there, find me on there at Paul Anleitner. There's a link in the description. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you reach out with questions, concerns, objections, differences of opinion. I love hearing them all. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.